Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Matt Ford and welcome to my new podcast, The Political Party. It's a recording of a live show I do in London every month at the St James Theatre. This is the first edition, so as you can uh, imagine on the night, I was very excited indeed. And it's a real pleasure to bring you this new show that blends me having a laugh about politics in the first half, but then introducing my audience to a political heavyweight in the second half. And this edition features the legend George Galloway. I hope you enjoy it. Good evening. Hello. Hello and welcome to the political party live at the St James's Theatre. I'm Matt Ford, thank you very much for coming along tonight. Uh, I'm obviously a big fan of politics myself uh, and the personalities that illuminate it. I think when you first get into politics as a young lad, you or a young woman, uh, they're allowed in these days, <laughs> you sort of you get into it because you want to make the world a better place, but then you're drawn to individuals, and actually what sustains you throughout all those years is these great personalities, regardless of your ideology, that illuminate the stage and, and make the world a, a more exciting place. So I can't thank you enough, all of you, for coming down tonight because this is the sort of show that, as a political fan myself, I thought didn't really exist in London or anywhere. And I, I enjoy stand-up comedy, but I love politics, the thrill of it. Even people of differing views, I'm sure the, uh, the room tonight is, is full of people who ideologically are split. And if you don't mind, I, I wouldn't mind taking a quick straw poll by means of cheers. If you uh, Just give us a sort of... Cheer if you're maybe slightly more conservative-minded. Yeah. That's healthy. <laughs> nice to know we're in with a party of government. That's always uh, that's always a positive. If you're if you're more labour-minded, perhaps. Yeah. Always more aggressive, aren't they? <laughs> Chips on their shoulders. Uh, liberals. <laughs> oh dear. <laughs> Well, it's fine, because most of my material is about the Lib Dems anyway, so at least, at least that will unite everyone. Uh, BNP? Got a check. <laughs> we didn't invite them, of course, um, but you never know. They, those people get everywhere. Uh, so it should be interesting, uh, I'm sure. Of course, this evening's guest is someone who is uh, arguably Britain's finest orator and one of the most controversial uh, politicians in Britain, so that should be, that should be really exciting. Um, I'm a Blairite myself. George knows, it's fine. It's not gonna be, I'm not going to reveal myself in the second half and come out to Mr Galloway as a Blair. I've always been... I first got into politics when I was about seven years old. Uh, I remember the day that Margaret Thatcher resigned, and it was the first thing that really drew me in. I'd been aware of Parliament until then. But I was walking uh, to school in Nottingham with my mum, and this skinhead from across the road ran over to my mum and went, She's out! She's out! She's fucking out! I thought, well, she leaves the house most days. <laughs> Doesn't tend to get this sort of ovation. I thought, what the hell's going on? My mum explained to me that Margaret Thatcher had resigned as Prime Minister and why that was important. And from then on, I was just absolutely captivated by politics and the battle of ideas, by Parliament itself, by the individuals that take part in it. And uh, the first political party I joined, actually, was the Socialist Worker Party at the age of 14. I left it at 14 in one week. <laughs> I'd either outgrown it or drifted right already. You make your own mind up. But <laughs> I had... Most 14-year-old lads who get their collar felt in Nottingham, it's for smoking weed, nicking stuff. Not for fly-posting. 
for a public meeting called Rosa Luxemburg, Reform or Revolution. <laughs> That's the sort of sad, nerdy teenage years that I had. And then uh, at 15, I joined the Labour Party uh, and have, have remained a member ever since. So, I mean, I, joined, I started in politics really at 14, so I've been politically active now for, for 16 years. You don't look 30. Thanks. I, uh, whenever I say politically active, it always makes it sound like I'm in a clinic. Sorry, Doc, I've been politically active for 16 years. This is my first checkup. Please tell me I haven't contracted Lib Dem. Jesus. You'll ruin my evening. But Blair was the first man for me that really captivated me as a leader. Uh, and I was drawn in by him. And I think it's a real shame now that we only see Tony Blair when there's a public inquiry on. Because he's done them all, hasn't he? Hutton, Butler, Chilcott, Leverson. I mean, he's on the political equivalent of an arena tour. Catch him while you can. He's like you too, but less political. <laughs> Find him, man. I mean, I, I really like him. This is, I'm sure, in the second half, something that me and George will uh, talk about, to say the least. But I think he was Britain's greatest ever Prime Minister. And whenever I stand in a room and tell people that I like Tony Blair, it tends to divide a room, usually about there. Um, and I understand why people don't like him. I understand why George is a vehement opposed him, uh, opponent of him. Uh, but I found him really inspiring. And uh, when I saw him at... Uh, Leveson, when the protester broke in, called him a war criminal, David Lawley Wakelin. I don't mind people calling him a war criminal. If that's your point of view, I fully understand why you think that. But at least be original in the way that you do it. I don't know if you saw it on Leveson. I did, because I watched the BBC Parliament channel live. <laughs> and you're right. I mean, I don't know why you lot are missing live House of Lords coverage until 11. <laughs> when then, of course, it's Wednesday in Parliament until 2am. But you all knew that. I... Uh, <laughs> So I was a massive fan of Blair. David Lawley Wakening gets in, doesn't he? Breaks into the floor of Leveson and goes, war criminal, and then gets arrested. You think, mate, if you're going to do it, at least do it differently. At least break in there in front of the world's media and go, sorry, Tony, war criminal says what? Sorry, what? On the record, arrest him. <laughs> I always get annoyed when I see protesters, but then I think, no one ever breaks in to be supportive. No one's ever going to break into the Leveson Inquiry and go, whoa, 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 just before you arrest me, I just want to say something. Tony, you're a fucking legend, mate. That's all. See you later. <laughs> They're always going to be negative, so I need, to, I need to learn to live in a world where that's the reality. But I'm, I'm very much a Blairite in my political makeup. I would describe myself as being a man of the left, but in the centre ground. So I think in some ways I'm left-wing, in other ways arguably I'm right-wing. I think the minimum wage in 2013 should be at least £10 an hour. But then I don't think we should overtax people who are making money who want to create jobs. I think we have to encourage ambition in Britain. I think we should in uh, increase our international aid budget to help people abroad. But I'm also open-minded about the use of torture. So I'm sort of bang in the middle, really. <laughs> bang in the reasonable centre ground where I think most of us are. Um, and as such, the, the coalition, you know, for a lot of people, I worked for the Labour Party for many years. For a lot of people, you know, the coalition is just the devil incarnate. And I don't think it is. And there's a lot of things the coalition have done that I agree with, uh, particularly this year. I mean, if you look at their, their reforms to gay marriage, socially liberal policies that Labour people should really agree with. Get, get extending gay marriage is absolutely the right thing to do, so I applaud David Cameron for doing it. You know, if you're interested in politics, you have to be consistent yourself as well. And I think gay marriage was a great thing, although, of course, it's caused them a, a lot of problems, the gay marriage vote. I mean, it must be very hard. I feel sorry for the whips on a vote like that, because you're trying to get MPs of differing parties to vote the same way on an issue, on a moral issue like gay marriage. And so much of what the Whip's Office does, of course, in trying to conjole MPs, is conducted in language and nods and winks and covert lexicon. So people are never quite sure whether they've got the votes or not. And on gay marriage, it must have been absolute murder. 
The whips going in to see Mr. Cameron saying, David, I'm sorry, uh, it's not looking good. They're uh, voting in the other lobby. Yeah, I know they are, mate, but I want them to get married as well. Oh, I see, I see. Give it to me straight, for want of a better phrase. Christ. Mayhem. And, of course, David Davies, the MP for Monmouth, not David Davis, the guy stood against Cameron. David Davies. This is phenomenal. My favourite, I think, outburst of the year. He said, I think most parents would like to have heterosexual children, right? Which I can understand to an extent, but I think the problem, what he's, he's thought of it like a maths equation. Like, if two heterosexual people have a child, that must be heterosexual. If I, I don't know where he thinks gay people come from. <laughs> I'm slightly concerned for him, but when people said to him, you're homophobic, some of you might have heard this, his defence was, I'm not homophobic, I used to be a part-time boxer, and when I was, I fought a gay bloke. <laughs> I'm not homophobic, mate, I'll try to knock one of them out, what's your problem? John Terry must have been sat at home going... You clever bastard. <laughs> That's the best excuse for prejudice I've ever heard. Just front it out. Amazing. So, of course, Nick Clegg, uh, in an attempt to try and get the government's message across, has now got his own phoning on LBC Radio. And uh, I'm sure most of you are aware of this. Uh, it's called Call Clegg. I'm not sure exactly what you meant to call him. I'm sure all of us have got a, f- a few choice words that we'd like to uh, ring him with. Did anyone hear it last week? Was that a yes? Anyone? Yeah. One person. Uh, what did you make of it? Informative. Informative. That's a politician's answer. <laughs> I actually think it was quite a brave move. Uh, it was, uh, to be fair to him, what he's doing is, is what's called a masochism strategy. Tony Blair used it in 2005. That says, when you're in trouble, go out on the front foot, just take an absolute beating from as many people as possible in the hope that the public will at least say, well, he didn't run off. That is pretty much what a masochism strategy is. Just take a beating and people will respect you for taking it. So he's gone out there. And of course, to be fair to Nick Clegg, and he's not my cup of tea, perhaps. But (laughs) definitely not. I mean, there was no point even trying to be nice about it. But at least he's gone out there. I respect any politician that goes out on the door, goes out on the telephone, who's prepared to face the public and hear difficult truths. I think all of us in this room really should respect people like that. So in an odd way... I think Nick Clegg's done something quite good. And what it allows him to do, of course, being on live talk radio, is explain his policies without having to do it through the mouthpiece of the media. What it allows us to do is ring up and call him a bellend. So it's, <laughs> it's a win-win situation, really. But part of me thinks, you know, I, I host a late-night phone-in on talk sport. I say late-night. It's 1am till 6am. <laughs> it's impossible to talk about that career without sounding like Alan Partridge. <laughs> No, actually, I'm, I'm doing quite well for myself. Yeah, I've got, I've got my own uh, sports-based chat show on a national broadcaster. Uh, 1 a.m. till 6 a.m., or as my friend in Australia calls it, prime time. <laughs> a part of me thinks, if Nick Clegg wants to do fo- phone in radio, fine. Let him learn his trade. Get him on overnights. Get him in the madhouse. Four o'clock in the morning, talking to people who are so drunk they can't remember their name. And this is true. One bloke who'd fallen asleep on the phone to me, having a wank. <laughs> and had the gall, no word of a lie, David in Dudley had the gall when I went, OK, we're going to line four, David in Dudley, to go, oh, sorry, Matt, you caught me with my tool in me hand. I said, you rang me. I'll ring you up. I didn't have an inkling of what you might be up to, mate. Let Nick Clegg deal with those people. That's what I say. Someone help me out here. I think politics is exciting enough. When people are allowed to say what they want, and tonight's guest, George Galloway, definitely says what he likes uh, because he believes it to be true and he's got a great personality. Next month's guest is Nigel Farage. 
Legend. <laughs> See, I like people even though I disagree with them. I think Nigel Farage is a phenomenal beacon of hope in politics because he tells it how he thinks it is. And he doesn't mind. <laughs> he, he's amazing. But what I love about Nigel Farage is he never ums and ahs. You, Nigel Farage, you could ask him anything. He never goes, let me think about that. He bangs straight in there before you can even finish. I'll tell you what, shout out something trivial. I can't do the voice very well, but I'll show you the sort of the formula of Farage. Just, just a trivial sort of household matter, you know, like what he would have for breakfast or something like that. And I'll, I would answer in the way that Nigel Farage would. Kittens. Well, first of all, I think there's too many of them. I think it's absolutely ridiculous. Why don't we stop standing up for the decent British dog? <laughs> Very easy. <laughs> Very easy. Between Nigel Farage. But that makes him entertaining. Um, well, before I put off future guests, uh, <laughs> I think we should uh, take a break, and uh, then I will be joined by George Galloway. Now, in the second half, what we're going to do, we'll take questions... Uh, I'll grill George uh, for a certain amount of time. Then if anyone's got a question they would like to ask George, he's happy to take questions. So just put your hand up and I'll come to you, speak loudly and clearly. So if there's anything you'd like to ask George Galloway, do have a think. Uh, so we'll have a break of about 20 minutes uh, and then we'll do questions for 45 minutes. Although I should add, as a Blairite, any claims about 45 minutes should probably be taken with a pinch of salt. <laughs> we may run over. Uh, so ladies and gentlemen, uh, firstly at the end of this first section, let me thank you all for coming down because it's remarkable to be able to, you know, when you first put on a night as a comedian and you have an idea, it's great to see so many people come down to be a part of it. So thank you one and all for coming down. Refresh yourselves at the bar and in 15 to 20 minutes we'll be joined by the legend George Galloway. For now, I've been Matt Ford. I'll see you in a bit. Thank you. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome back to the stage, Matt Ford! Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Are we on? Thank you very much. Can you hear me okay? Sorry. Yeah. Lovely. Uh, I always worry these things after Gordon Brown. <laughs> Everyone who came backstage to talk to me just immediately like that, just in case I made some awful comment. Uh, well, thank you very much for uh, being so lovely in the first half. Uh, we move on now to uh, such an exciting thing to be able to introduce. I don't think there are many comedians who can say the next month they're gigging with George Galloway and Nigel Farage. Uh, it's an honour for me to be able to say so. Uh, I should just say before I bring George on that he and I got to know each other. I'm still at TalkSport. George used to do the show before mine at TalkSport as well, so we got to know each other when we would hand over on air. And uh, even though ideologically we have our differences, even though we're, I would say I'm still just about on the left, uh, I got to know George very well, and he's, uh, he's an absolute legend. Uh, I think he's the finest orator in British politics at the moment. He's certainly one of the most controversial MPs. I can't thank him enough, really, for coming down here and doing this opening night. Hopefully, uh, we will see flashes of the, uh, the great genius. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the stage my guest, Mr George Galloway. <laughs> Do you want someone to put your hat? <laughs> Lovely. Uh, George, I, I was thinking about my own sort of lifespan in politics, and I've been uh, politically active, as I say, for 16 years. This year will mark your 10th anniversary of being expelled from the Labour Party. Yeah. Um, do you feel that you're isolated on the left now? And, and, and if so, are you comfortable with it? Uh, no, I'd rather have not been expelled from the Labour Party. Uh, it's amazing you say that because just this very day uh, I had a conversation with a very senior member of the Labour Party in Parliament. He's on lobby terms, I can't say uh, whom. But that person 
did not know I had actually been expelled. Uh, he, he, he thought that I had left and he asked me, what were the reasons for you leaving again? And that's, what that told me was that how young... The Ed Miliband is. <laughs> no. no, it wasn't Ed Miliband, but uh, it was somebody very important. Uh, how young they are and how short political memory is. Mm. Uh, whereas I am I'm blessed or cursed, depending on your point of view, with an elephantine memory. I remember what Trotsky said to Lenin on the 21st of October in, uh, in Petrograd, never mind what happened 10 years ago. He said, why did you get kicked out of the party? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, Mr. Blair uh, expelled me for comparing him to a wolf and then apologising <laughs> to the noble wolf. <laughs> uh, but we'll come on to that, I'm sure. So, no, I'd rather not have been uh, expelled. I spent 36 years in the Labour Party. Like you, I joined it at 13, exactly the same age. Um, and, uh, you know, I loved it a lot more than the people who kicked me out of it. I loved its vocabulary, its iconography, its old-fashioned uh, ritual and, uh, and so on. It was really something important to me in my life. If the Labour Party said, George, we'd have you back, would, would you go back? No, not unless... Labour became Labour again, and I'm sorry to say, uh, I don't see any prospect of that. But you were, you were kicked out in 2003, so for, for nearly nine years you've been an MP under New Labour, yeah. uh, and uh, six of those years New Labour in office, so even, even under Blair you were still comfortable just about staying in the Labour fold. Just about, yeah, but I, I was permanently rebelling in votes and so on. Uh, and breaking three-line whips, and it was kind of only a matter of time. And I told them so at the time, when Mr. Blair won the election uh, on the death of John Smith, who was a very close friend of mine, and who I believe is the best Labour Prime Minister we never had, uh, when John Smith died and Blair got the leadership, I told people then, and, and I told them in front of Mr. Blair, on a platform at Inverness, uh, into a microphone live on television, that uh, this uh, man might look nice, and I, I recognise from your earlier uh, part of the gig that he looked very nice to you. Uh, <laughs> this, uh, the, the, this is going to end in disaster. Uh, this is a hijack uh, of the Labour Party, and they're going to fly the Labour Party to destruction. And I think that's more or less what happened. But George, see, I count myself as just about on the left, because in terms of social conscience and, and social liberalism and, and things like that, and workers' rights. But if the Labour Party continued to be on the left as it was, would it ever have won a general election again? Well, there's two points uh, I think need to be made. Of course, that's a question that's asked all the time. Uh, first of all, most people in the country today, by all indicators, public opinion polls, phone-ins to shows like ours, letters to newspapers, anecdotal evidence, most people share most of the views that I have been arguing for and that Mr. Blair slaughtered as being uh, you know, untenable electorally. Most people think the Iraq war was a disaster. Most people think we ought to be out of Afghanistan tomorrow evening, if not yesterday. Most people think bankers should be strung up from Southwark Bridge. Uh, and that they're Millennium Bridge would be nice. It's closer to the city. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Uh, and that uh, their ill-gotten gains should be taken back off them uh, in tax. I noticed you distanced yourself from that policy earlier. 
Uh, most people think that... <laughs> <laughs> well, that's uh, I believe in ambition, George, that's all. Well, we'll come to that. <laughs> that uh, most people believe that uh, privatisation went too far. Most people believe that uh, these PPIs, PPPs, all this public-private <coughs> partnerships and private finance initiatives and so on uh, were uh, an accountancy trick which has uh, deceived and robbed the public and so on. I could go through almost all subjects with the possible exception of capital punishment and maybe Europe. And most people are on the left. Uh, so I think your thesis falls on that uh, account. But I would say this, this is the more controversial point. What is the point in trying to get into government if in government you have to govern like the last lot that you replaced? What is the point of that? I've never understood it. I would not want to be in power if I could not do with power that which I think needs to be done. If I had to be like you in order to get into power, well, why not just let you be in power? But there are subtle changes, aren't there? So you, you accept the changing times. So just as the Labour Party moved on things like economy and uh, crime, so the Tory party of today has had to move on things like the NHS. And the, the Tory party went into the last election defending the NHS. People can argue about the reforms they brought in since. But nevertheless, the NHS under Cameron won't be fully dismantled. No, but it's, it's on the way to dismantlement. And it's in a shocking state, as anyone who has had uh, recent engagement with it. I think would, uh, would testify, and moreover, they performed a deception on the public because they said there would be no top-down reorganisation of the NHS, and as soon as they got in, they introduced top-down reorganisation of the NHS, and it's causing chaos, as anybody who works in it uh, knows. Now, I, I take your point about crime. You see, uh, this is where I lose whatever support I've got in here. Uh, I'm not a liberal. I used to say on TalkSport... People would say, that's a funny view for a liberal. I used to say, I mean small l. I used to say, never confuse me with a liberal. I'm not a liberal. Labour should have been much tougher on crime, mm. always, uh, than they were. And there was a period uh, in social democracy when often the social democrats sounded like they were on the side of the criminal and, uh, and cared little about the victim uh, of the crime. So, you know, I'm not uh, a liberal, and I don't think that Labour ought to have been a liberal party. I'm a socialist. That means I believe in order, I believe in discipline, I believe in organisation, I believe in leadership. I think that the nation has to be united and stay together, and that way we'll march forward. But, but when you look at socialist governments in, in recent years, and the, when you think about Russia, when you think about East Germany, the fall of the Berlin Wall, what was also twinned with these socialist states was also horrific human rights abuse, when people saw the choice between socialism and capitalism, why did the people who socialism was meant to be set up for choose capitalism so emphatically? Well, I, I mean, I'm not flying a flag for that brand of socialism, though you're fully, fully entitled to indict me for it, uh, as you're going to do anyway. But it, it's, <laughs> worth, uh, it's worth making the point that in every one of these former socialist countries, the Communist Party remains a massive force in politics. I mean, in, in Russia, for example, Putin is the leader and the number two party is the Communist Party. And that's true in uh, the Czech Republic, in Slovakia, in Hungary, in, uh, in uh, Romania, and uh, so on. So it's not true that the socialist ideas are universally reviled in countries that once had socialism. And East Germany, actually, uh, was the most successful uh, of these socialist economies, probably because they were German rather than because they were socialist, uh, <laughs> but that's another 
matter. Uh, so there were many uh, good things achieved in those uh, socialist countries, not the least of which is this. If it were not for the Soviet Union, we would be conducting this conversation in German. Because if not for the Soviet Union, Hitler would have won the war, and we would now be a Nazi-occupied country, or perhaps we would have overthrown their yoke <laughs> by now. But older people here, I noticed nobody acknowledged that, older people, our grandfathers and their fathers, would be able to tell you very clearly that it was the sacrifice of the people of the Soviet Union, it was the incredible feats of the Red Army that actually defeated Adolf Hitler. Our role in the war, after our crucial role of being the last man standing and refusing to surrender, which is, I think, to our eternal credit, it was our finest hour, as Churchill put it, but our role kind of was marginal thereafter. So uh, there were many achievements in the socialist times in these socialist countries, but there were many disastrous failures. Now, you want to talk about horrific human rights abuses? No doubt there were human rights abuses, and no doubt many of them were horrific. But as a man who's ambivalent about the use of torture, you ought to be careful uh, where, you, uh, where, you go, where you go on that. Look, capitalism has killed more people than Adolf Hitler. Capitalism kills people every few minutes that we've been speaking. What do you mean by that, George? Do you mean in actual wars waged by capitalist governments or no just wars. the capitalist system draws? No wars, the system itself. And I gave an example at a private school I was speaking at the other day, two days ago, in <laughs> Brentwood in Essex, Jack Straw's alma mater. Um, I, I, I made this point to someone who raised querulously, as you just have, uh, what do you mean by that? I said this. Let's take just one example. Malaria kills 50 million people a year. Malaria could be cured with a single jab. A rational, planned economic system would say, turn the factory on, run as much malaria medicine as is needed to inoculate the world against malaria, and malaria is finished. But capitalism says, we'll run as much malaria medicine as you've got the money to pay for. And if you don't have the money to pay for it, then you'll just have to risk dying of malaria. So I say the economic system that we have that prevails in most of the world, though not entirely all of it, is one that cares little for uh, human life and cares mostly about uh, filthy lucre. But you could also say, you could look at communist countries and, 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 uh, and socialist countries as well and say, well, people had no money, people used to die of starvation in places like Russia, and malnutrition. Well, well, let's take a more contemporary example, China. China has lifted more people out of poverty in the last 30 years than any system, any regime ever has. Now, number one, there is a price in human rights, yep. and number two, it's not entirely socialist. But it has still a socialist base to its economy. The state has a decisive role in the economy. Uh, there were 21 billionaires in China uh, uh, two years ago, and 11 of them are now in prison. Uh, China deals rather harshly with the kind of people we give knighthoods to and, uh, <laughs> and send to prison. And there, there's an example of illiberalism with, of which I approve. Uh, so. Um, there's, uh, there's uh, no doubt that uh, capitalism is, a, I believe, literally a murderous system. It cannot be as good as it gets. There must be a better way. And I think that socialism is that better way. 
So let's let's go back to sort of your childhood and growing up. You joined the Labour Party at thirteen. What was it that inspired you to get into politics? Well, my, my, I was born into a, a Labour household. My father was a lay official of the Engineering Union (AEU). Uh, he worked in uh, factory making cash registers. He was a trade union man through and through, and therefore he was in the Labour Party. Uh, my mother, from Irish immigrant Republican uh, background, uh, was first and foremost. Uh, against imperialism. When I was young, I came home and told my Irish grandfather that the teacher had said that Britain had an empire so vast that upon it the sun never set. And my grandfather answered, that's because God would never trust the British in the dark. <laughs> uh, so that's the kind of uh, family background that I came from. And I, I grew up in a house uh, full of books, and uh, we were banned from watching ITV, which was quite a new thing at the time, ITV because my parents said it's rubbish on ITV. I think they were not that far wrong. We were forced to uh, watch only the BBC, and when BBC Two came on, came on online, on stream rather, we had to watch only BBC Two. It was that kind of a uh, house. Um, but, uh, you know, I owe my parents a very great deal. Uh, my mother's still alive, but I particularly owe my father for uh, my political life that I've been able to lead. Uh, may God rest his soul. So you haven't drifted right in old age at all? No, I think that goes uh, and I'm a bit worried about that because you've drifted right since the last time I saw you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that was, only two, that was only two weeks past Wednesday. Uh, uh, so I'm a bit worried that I actually believe exactly the same things that I always believe. It's not to say I haven't made mistakes. I've made many. It's not to say that I cannot now see mistakes in the political system mm. and uh, ideas that I have. I, I can but I still, be, I still uh, uh, believe in them. I should say, uh, talking of uh, trumpets and, and blowing them, if you're not following uh, Matt on the radio and on in his uh, stand-up uh, career, you really should. He's a very, very smart guy and a real, he's a big star in the future. Oh, really a big star in the future. <laughs> <laughs> I won't say I discovered him on TalkSport, <laughs> but there were times on TalkSport where I was his only supporter. <laughs> Uh, my only listener, uh, I think, most of the time. Especially <laughs> <laughs> around that three, four o'clock in the morning, Mark, <laughs> where people have got their tools in their hands. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure he said towel. <laughs> I mean, we, you've spoken to a lot of these people as well, though. We'll, we'll, we'll come on to the sort of talk radio days. I mean, I, I genuinely felt when you were at Talk Sport that you were the best radio presenter in the country because there was Thank you. nowhere else. Thank you very much. I no. wish I was still there. It was a great, great gig. Seven years I did that. It was incredible, and it was mm. proper for a station that does a lot of sports coverage, obviously hence the name, to then in the evening to be able to listen to this absolute rumble every night, and you taking a, you know, and even though I disagree with you on things, George, you know, it's always great to hear people air their opinions and to hear people change their opinions and to have the ignorant as the people that you would mm. often, uh, mm. frankly, tear to shreds a lot mm. of the time. And it, mm. It was, it was, it was, <laughs> I, kn I know you're against blood sport, but you, you walked the line with the way that you, yeah, you, yeah. you took some of those people. It was absolutely incredible. And you've, you, that, that style you have, which um, I'll come on to the Hitchens debates in a second, but it, certainly in the way that the respect party, in fact, I, w I came to a public meeting, I've never told you this, before you set up the respect party, um, I, I'd not long joined Labour and respect was sort of being talked about and you addressed uh, a group of socialists in Nottingham in this hotel room, and it was... I'd in the George Hotel? In the George Hotel, it was, yeah, yeah. And I, what was most incredible about it was I disagreed with so, so much of what you said, but uh, my spine still tingled 
because of the, 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 the nature of your oratory. You know, it, was, it was the first lesson in how I could find someone that I disagreed with on a lot of the things, because a lot of it was about Iraq at the time, um, still so incredible and so entertaining. And mm. you've, you've carried that forward in respect. But with the way that the respect party is... I mean, I've campaigned against respect in the past in, in Leicester in 2004. Oh, yeah. A lot of people have issues with the way that the party campaigns, and a lot of people think that maybe it's too aggressive. I mean, do you think the respect party is... Is too aggressive. <laughs> Do you think it is a little too aggressive, or is this just the rough and tumble of politics? I think it is, and it's because we are outside what uh, Dr. Johnson said, the grimmest dictatorship of them all is the dictatorship of the prevailing orthodoxy. We are outside of the prevailing orthodoxy, and the others are in it. Tweedledee, tweedledum, tweedledee and a half. If an arse, if an arse could have three cheeks, it would be... Uh, the uh, three mainstream parties. Uh, and we're outside of that. And when you see an arse with three cheeks, you've just got to <laughs> slap it. <laughs> uh, it's irresistible. Um, and that, uh, you know, it's because we don't believe, you see, that there's only an inch in politics between, uh, you know, the cho within which the choices must be made. We, we have a different paradigm. We believe something almost entirely different. So you can't really conduct that discourse in uh, over to you and, yes, over to you. Because that's what the House of Commons is like. Mm. And that's what I think, uh, at least today, not when I first joined it. Uh, and I think people don't like that. People instinctively know that uh, when, you know, David Cameron gets up and mournfully encants that he'll never forget the name of the soldier he's about to pay mm. tribute to who's just lost his life, and Ed Miliband gets up and says exactly the same thing. People know that by the end of Prime Minister's questions, 30 minutes later, neither of them could name the soldier they'd just promised never to forget. Uh, people know that. And people think that these mainstream politicians are insincere. Mm. Mr. Blair might well have coined the phrase that actually Bob Monkhouse did, that once you've learned to fake the sincerity, the rest is easy. And that's what I think most people think of politicians. And because we are different to that, whether you agree with us or not, like us or not, people know that we are different to that. And I think that's why we've got some traction. This podcast is brought to you by eHarmony, the dating app to find someone you can be yourself with. Why doesn't eHarmony allow copy and paste in first messages? Because you are unique and your conversations should reflect that eHarmony wants you to find someone who will get you. How are you going to know who gets you? If people send you the same generic conversation starters, they message everyone else. Conversations that actually help you get to know each other. Imagine that. Get who gets you on eHarmony. Sign up today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. But there's, there's a difference <coughs> between maybe saying things that a lot of people don't agree with and, and maybe perhaps the, the sort of conduct of the party and, and the, the tactics that are used. Now, I understand that if you're outside of the mainstream, you don't have the same machinery that parties yeah. can, can uh, rattle into by-elections and that you have to be. Mm. I've got nothing wrong with a political street fight, and that's why I like working on by-elections. Mm. Um, but some people would say that if you look at Leicester, if you look at 
Bradford, if you look at the places where respect campaigns, it's usually in areas of a high ethnic mix where there are racial and religious tensions. I mean, mm. do you think in recent years respect has been guilty of preying upon those tensions for electoral gain? No, in fact, the same candidate in Leicester, Yvonne Ridley, uh, did really very well just a couple of weeks ago in Rotherham, uh, which is a 95% white town. So I think the thesis falls down at that very point. Yvonne beat the Tories and the Liberals uh, in a 95% white town. Only less than 5% of the people there are Asian and Muslim. And she, she beat the Tories and the Liberals out of the park, actually. And in Leicester, I didn't realize that you'd been working in that by-election, she secured then the best fourth-party election result since the war until Bradford, uh, which was, of course, of a different uh, order, uh, arithmetically, cephalogically, and for me. <laughs> <laughs> it was an incredible... It was a t I don't think anyone, maybe apart from you, mm. thought until the day that you were going to win. I mean, did you get any sense throughout that campaign that you were, were going to win? Well, I have to, uh, I'm, I'm being honest with you, and I know that it will sound far-fetched. I always believed that I would win the Bradford West by-election, but I acknowledge I was the only person, including my friends and family who are with me here tonight. I was literally the only person who thought I'd win it. When I arrived in Bradford on day one of a 20-day campaign, the odds were 200 to 1 against me. Now, I don't believe in gambling, but if I had gambled, my goodness, how rich uh, uh, I, I would have been because I, I believed that I would win it from the very first day. And uh, a friend of mine, Seamus Milne from The Guardian, called me on the Monday of the week uh, of polling, so three days before polling day, and he said, uh, I hear that you're going to get a good second. And I said, Seamus, I'm going to win. He said, no. <laughs> <laughs> but I was certain on the Monday. And then... I tweeted at exactly 10 p.m. the moment the last vote was cast, before the votes were even taken to the counting house, never mind counted, I tweeted the following words, we have won a landslide victory in the Bradford West by-election. And the TV commentators, when I arrived at the count, were so aggressive. How could you send out this claim? The votes haven't even been counted yet. I said, well, speak to me again after they have been. I was absolutely certain that we'd win. Now, partly because I think uh, we fought a fantastic campaign, uh, but mainly because where there is an alternative to the Tweedledee, Tweedledum politics, people will go for it. That's why Farage, I mean, I don't like him uh, as much as you evidently do, <laughs> uh, and I, I certainly dislike vehemently his central political message, uh, this little Englander uh, type uh, mentality. Um, but the reason he's quite popular in the country is for the reasons you say, yeah. because he's got an edge, people think he's sincere, uh, and uh, especially if you catch him before 2 or 3 <laughs> o'clock in the afternoon, um, <laughs> allegedly. Uh, <laughs> I'm sure in Bradford there was still a lot of, Labour I'm sure was still being punished for Afghanistan and for Iraq, and uh, obviously a lot of people here tonight know where you stand on Iraq um, and I, I fully understand where you stand and I, I know that you know the issues more than probably anyone else but one of the most, I think it's fair to say, embarrassing things for you was the, the video footage of you meeting Saddam Hussein mm. um, and as we know from your appearance in the Senate committee you met him twice, not many times but those two meetings and particularly the one that was on video, do you regret meeting him now? 
No, uh, um, uh, unlike Donald Rumsfeld, I was not meeting him to sell him guns and gas and give him maps the better to target them. Uh, I was meeting him to try and bring about an end to sanctions that were killing an Iraqi child every six minutes of every day and night and to avert a war which has cost the lives of a, of a million people. And jaw-jaw is better than war-war. If we did more jaw-jawing, uh, we would avoid a lot of war-warring, and the warring is really getting me down, and it's getting the country down. Uh, and you see how swiftly now the empire strikes back. We invaded Mali with France on Saturday, and tonight a number of our citizens are, have been taken hostage and captive in uh, North Africa, in the Maghreb, and God knows what will happen to them. The empire strikes back. It's not a, a, a cheap option. If you attack somebody, they attack you back. And I, I sought to avoid that. And you are now the last person in England who believes that a war which cost a million lives, which radicalized Muslims, fanaticized them, extremized them all over the world, was a good idea. I think the problem is with George Orr is that we'd had it from prior to the first Gulf War and in between the two Gulf Wars, and it just got to a point where Saddam Hussein had been aggressive towards Iran, towards the Kuwaitis, towards his own people. What then does... Uh, I support the war for left-wing reasons, and I still do, because I think at some point democracy has to stand up to people like Osama bin Laden, like uh, Ahmadinejad, and like Saddam Hussein. And at some point, we have to, for humanitarian reasons, like we did in Kosovo, like we did in Sierra Leone, stand up to these people. And it gets to a point where you think, well, what is the point in living in a developed society and sharing these liberal values if we don't stand up for them sometimes? Yeah. But beware, they might stand up to you. Uh, and they might not just stand up to you where you've sent your soldiers to them. They might come here and stand up to you here. And you have to ask, your uh, ask the question, uh, are we ready to face that? Are we, you have no sons. I do. Uh, I'm not ready to send my son to Afghanistan to give his life's blood to defend President Karzai uh, and what you call democracy. I, I don't call it that in Afghanistan. So if I'm not prepared to send my own son to do that, why should I send other people's sons uh, to do that? And there are a number of really major problems with what you said there. First of all, you conflated all these crimes of Saddam Hussein without mentioning that most of them were committed with our assistance, uh, our behest, and using weapons we gave them to do it with. You said he was aggressive towards Iran. You're right. That's why I was on the side of Iran in the war between 1980 and 1988. But Britain and America were on the side of Iraq. Yeah, but they encouraged Saddam Hussein to attack Iran. So you can't really justify pulverizing a million Iraqis to punish them for a crime that you encouraged them to commit well, no, no, armed I, them to commit George, I in the first place. I wasn't in government, and I no, disagree with no, the arms trade. So, no, so I, I disagreed with his arms, yeah. Saddam Hussein. Yeah. No, I, I, I didn't mean you. I, I meant Britain uh, no, I know as a state. I understand what you mean. Britain as a state, America as a state, did pray and aid his aggressive behavior towards this and that, and some of which you adumbrated there. And what about the people who died in those years in between? What, do, what, what were we doing for those people? Because well, you were against sanctions, you were against war. In, in yeah. all honesty, what on earth could we have done to persuade Saddam Hussein to leave office? Well, why is it your business whether Saddam Hussein leaves office or not? Because who I care about suffering around the world because I'm still a man of the gave you the right to choose the leaders of countries thousands of miles away? It's up to Iraq who its leader but is. But it wasn't up to Iraq they weren't allowed to vote. Well, but th then they must rise up and overthrow their dictator, as Arabs are now doing in sundry dictatorships. Nobody appointed us, Matt. 
not, let alone God gave us a duty or a right to go around the world saying, I'm going to remove your government and your government, especially when it's deeply hypocritical. Because our best friend in the Middle East is Saudi Arabia, which is the darkest tyranny on the earth. So how can they be our best friends? Our best friends, we give them guns and all kinds of support. We help keep the tyranny in power. But we're asked to believe that we're killing somebody next door in defense of democracy and liberty. Nobody believes that, man. No, I don't, I don't defend everything that the British and American governments do. I, d- I abhor the arms trade, and I think we need a, a more consistent approach in our foreign policy. But equally, I think where tyranny exists, if it's, I care about humanitarian, humanitarianism and freeing people from tyranny. Mm-hmm. And I just think the problem is when you look at things like conflicts with Iraq, is that the cost of inaction is never given the same emotional weight. So you can mm. sit here and rightly say that the cost of action was that it cost a million Iraqi lives. Well, I could easily say that the cost of inaction cost possibly many more, and they're no, still, no, they're still, no, they're still no, discovering no, mass graves no, in Baghdad. Uh, no, Human Rights Watch uh, have, uh, and thereby f- very far from being a pro-Saddamist uh, organization, uh, estimated that around 40 uh, deaths of political, for political reasons, 40 political deaths occurred in Iraq in the 12 months before the war. So there was a lot of crimes committed by Saddam Hussein, uh, but they were not remotely of the order of the crimes committed by your mate, uh, Tony Blair. Have you any idea what a million dead Iraqis would look like? Can you imagine it in Trafalgar Square? You know what a a million, you know how big a tower a million dead people is? And you want to talk to me about the price and the cost? Well, I supported the overthrow of Saddam Hussein and I think you were right too. I supported it long before Britain and America as states did so. I regularly demonstrated outside the Iraqi embassy. I was the only MP to turn up for the demonstration about Halabja, the gassing of Kurdish people by Saddam Hussein, at a time when the British and American governments continued to claim that Iran had carried out this crime rather than uh, Saddam. It's great for individuals and people and organizations to support other organizations in other people's countries to help them overthrow their tyranny and get things better. That's a different thing from your state invading another state and killing large numbers of people in order to bring about a political outcome uh, which uh, is a reversal of the political outcome they previously willed. Most people in here will not know that Saddam Hussein only became the leader of Iraq because Britain and America assisted him to be so. They then gave him all the weapons and encouragement that he needed and encouraged their satrapies in the Gulf to give him money to attack Iran. And a million people died in the Iran-Iraq war. And he was doing it for us. And then we say we're going to pulverize and kill a million Iraqis to punish him for his role in, amongst other things, the Iran war. It's just sick hypocrisy. So do you think intervention is always wrong? Uh, what if it was done through the United Nations? Mm. So let's say Britain, would have, Britain and America would have got that second resolution and it would have been passed mm. unanimously. Mm. Would that then, in your eyes, be more legitimate? Or is all intervention? No, I think, uh, no I, I'm not against all intervention. Uh, as a matter of fact, if I'd been alive uh, at the time of the Spanish Civil War, uh, when fascism overthrew successfully the elected progressive government in Spain, if I'd been alive and uh, uh, old enough at the time, I would have been fighting in Spain as part of the International Brigade and its intervention. I think the Vietnamese were right to intervene in Cambodia and overthrow Pol Pot and his uh, genocidal, uh, uh, insane uh, regime. 
there is a case for intervention, but it has to satisfy three criteria. First of all, it has to be legal. That means it has to be authorized by a proper, uh, properly empowered uh, organs like the United Nations Security Council. That's a necessary but not sufficient condition. The second condition is that it must uh, not make things worse. Uh, so the intervention in Afghanistan, for example, has made everything worse, in my view. And thirdly, it should, if humanly possible, be regional. So it was right that it was Vietnam that dealt with the Pol Pot problem next door. It would be right uh, for the neighboring countries of the Congo uh, to uh, try to solve the uh, problems that uh, exist there, or in Mali, for that matter. What can never be right is the former colonial powers returning to the scenes of their former crimes as empires and reoccupying those countries, which is what has happened in Mali uh, just in the last uh, couple of days. Now that can never be right. So it must be legal. It must do uh, less harm than the <coughs> situation it's supposed to deal with, and it should be regional. So African problems should be dealt with by Africans. They should never be dealt with by white men reinvading places that they used to snatch slaves from and sail them in the holds of boats across the um, across to the Americas and make them work as slaves in the in the fields. That can never be right. So with Afghanistan, that you you, mm. you say that uh, military intervention was wrong after September the 11th. Then, in your view, what would have been the best possible outcome for that? Yeah. And how should Britain and more importantly America have behaved? Well, I'm I'm glad you reminded me of that because that's one of the other points I was going to make in relation to your earlier question. I said in the House, you remember, I got an award for a, a, a debater of the year for this speech. I said this three days after 9-11. Don't try and hang bin Laden against me. I was the last man standing opposing bin Laden when you, the Tories, were giving him... Uh, not you. Not you, specifically. You, no, not you. <laughs> Although they're in the deer seats, yeah? Uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, when Britain and America sent bin Laden to Afghanistan. I, I said to Mrs. Thatcher, to her face, on the floor of the House of Commons, you have opened the gates to the barbarians, and a long, dark night will now descend on the people of Afghanistan. That's what I said two days before the triumph of bin Laden and his ilk uh, in Kabul uh, in 1989. Uh, so bin Laden has nothing to do with me, right? I don't think you're under any suspicion, George. I think. No. <laughs> no uh, well, you never know. Uh, the point is this. We sent bin Laden to Afghanistan. Now we're punishing the people of Afghanistan for having once had bin Laden in their country. If the point of the Afghan war was to get rid of al-Qaeda, well, we've got rid of them all right. We've sent them first into Libya and now into Syria. We're employing them again. There's no al-Qaeda in Afghanistan, as the United States government openly acknowledges. If it was about bin Laden, bin Laden's dead. So why are young British soldiers, like one that was acknowledged at Prime Minister's Question Time today, still being asked to give their life's blood for a war, the aims of which, if they were as stated, have already been achieved? That's why I say we really have to get out of Afghanistan without any further delay. We don't have the blood to spare, and we certainly don't have the treasure to spare. What should have been done? Yeah. We should have made a forensic, police-style attack on the Tora Bora 
and captured bin Laden. Instead, we made war against the entire country of Afghanistan and we occupied it year after year, installing a puppet government. Let me tell you what I said at Brentwood, Jack Straw's alma mater, just two days ago. Jack Straw, in January of 2002, addressing the House, said, I expect that our soldiers will be home for Christmas. You'd think politicians weary of the First World War. Ah, but he didn't say what year. Yeah. He said, (laughs) we'll be home for Christmas. And I rose and said, the troops will not be home ten Christmases hence. And it says in Hansard, brackets, laughter. (laughs) That's what it says. He invited the House to laugh at this idea and how they laughed. But ten Christmases hence, we are still in Afghanistan. And nobody can rationally explain why we're still there. Because we're going to leave on exactly the terms that we could have left at any time in the past ten years. One thing that fascinates me about you, George, is I think a lot of people presume your opinions on things and they turn out to be wrong. It was one thing I learned at Talk Sport was that a lot of people presume that actually you might have a lot of truck with conspiracy theories, particularly mm-hmm. things around 7 7 and 9 11. Mm-hmm. I remember hearing you deal with uh, one particular caller on 9 11. I mean, in terms of going that far, that George Bush might have been behind 9 11 or that Tony Blair might have known about 7 7, I mean, ludicrous. Yeah. Ludicrous. In my experience in life, which is now quite long, Almost everything is a cock-up rather than uh, a conspiracy. <laughs> um, you know, I, uh, uh, in a straight kind of way, I mean. Um, the, uh, you know, our, our rulers are not James Bonds. They're more Austin Powers. Uh, they, Austin capa- devolved powers, yeah, these things. Devolved powers, well, well said, very good. Very good. Um, the, and... and uh, all sorts of things happen because people don't know or they forgot. Like the senior Labour figure that asked me today, what were the reasons you <laughs> left the Labour Party <laughs> again for? Um, they uh, have no historical memory, they make mistakes, they fail to learn from history, and so on. Um, I don't believe for one second that the Americans committed that atrocity against themselves on 9-11. Still less do I believe that the British committed the atrocity on 7-7 against themselves, except in this respect. Both governments appear to believe that both of these atrocities, mass murder, came out of a clear blue sky. And I argued then and now that actually these things came out of a swamp. They came out of a swamp of hatred and bitterness, which we ourselves helped to sow. Uh, so, in that regard, we are not directly, of course, responsible for these acts of mass murder. The mass murderers are directly responsible for it. But we created the conditions for these mass murderers to prosper. Uh, I said in that speech in, uh, right after 9-11, if we handle this the wrong way, we'll make 10,000 bin Ladens. Well, actually, we probably made 10 million bin Ladens, including in our own country and they exploded themselves and many of us uh, on 7-7. It's an argument obviously you, you famously had many times with Christopher Hitchens and mm. uh, I'm not sure if anyone in the room has seen the, the YouTube footage of those incredible debates and it really was, no matter what side of the debate you were on, phenomenal to see almost politics done as a boxing match. Yeah. Uh, and there was, there was clearly a lot of, it looked like personal 
animosity between sure, the pair sure, of you. Yeah. Was there any mutual respect? Uh, I had no respect for him, uh, <laughs> and I doubt if he had any uh, for me, although I did start that speech by saying, uh, you wrote like an angel, uh, but you are now in the service of the devil. And that's what I believe happened to Christopher Hitchens. He was a great man of the left, and when he was, he was a magnificent asset. But he just became a magnificent ass when he went over to the Bushites. And even in that debate, defended Bush's handling of, uh, of uh, New Orleans, of the floods in, in New Orleans. Uh, and now even Bush wouldn't defend his handling of the New Orleans uh, flooding uh, disaster. But Hitchens felt the need to. But I, I, I'll grant you this. Two British guys in New York had thousands of people literally queuing many, many blocks and paying top dollar to hear two British guys uh, have a brawl, uh, have a verbal uh, brawl. And the YouTube video has phenomenal uh, hits, millions and millions. He obviously sadly died yesterday. You won't be surprised to hear that Hitchens is uh, an idol of mine and I find his writing electric, even when I disagree with him. Um, and I was, I was sad that he died. Uh, any death, uh, of course, is a tragedy. Um, a million is a statistic, as Stalin said. Mm. But do you, do you miss him? No, uh, I can't, I'm not, I'm not uh, glad that he's uh, dead because my religion forbids me to uh, take uh, pleasure in anyone's death. Uh, but uh, I don't uh, give him uh, a moment's thought unless asked by people like you. I described him uh, famously, uh, as it turned out, in all the anthologies, as a drink-soaked uh, former Trotskyist Popinjay. And I think that's more or less what he was. Another one of your famous YouTube clips is obviously the, the showdown with the Senate. Yeah. Which is, to this day, just an incredible piece of mm. political drama. What I think amazes me more than anything else is that they clearly didn't know what they were letting themselves in for. I mean, <laughs> it was just ridiculous. If they, even if they'd have spoken to Tony Blair, you know, and I'm sure there are some people that think the British government colluded in it, but they would have obviously said, this guy's a serious debater. He will, he will open up gaps in your argument. You know, I, I find it remarkable that they, they didn't think mm. that, that putting you in front of TV... I mean, did you realise at the time that actually it was a massive platform for you? I did. Uh, as as, as, George, <laughs> as, uh, as George, w, George W. Bush might put it, they misunderestimated me. <laughs> uh, they, uh, they, they misunderestimated, I think, also the quality of debate and so on in British politics mm. compared to theirs. I mean, most of these senators would be lucky to be a town councillor in England. Uh, and yet they are... Well, look at George W. Bush. I watched Fahrenheit 9-11 again last night uh, because my wife hadn't seen it. I wanted to show it to her. And I marveled again, how could this imbecile <laughs> be the most powerful person in the world and elected twice or stolen the election once at least, maybe both times. Uh, but uh, these senators uh, were kind of George Bush minus... Uh, indeed, Norman Coleman, who's now an ex-senator, and I campaigned against him in Minnesota and had the pleasure of being the first foreigner to describe him as ex-senator Norman Coleman, who was the chairman of the Senate uh, panel. You know, I used to be a boxer, uh, and there comes a moment in a, in a fight where you can see in the other person's eyes that they no longer want to be there. That was after about five minutes. Uh, well, I saw in just a few minutes into this, I saw in his eyes the feeling that this is actually not going well. 
<laughs> can we, can we, uh, can we, you know, metaphorically throw in the towel uh, here? But of course, you can't do that when the live TV cameras are on from all over the world. No, I relished getting up close and personal with them. Uh, and uh, well, they never asked me back. Put it that way. <laughs> they, they were, I remember the story at the time. I was at school. It, I remember it on the front page of the Telegraph. And what it was was that. Apparently, troops had gone into a bombed-out government building in Afghanistan mm. and found in a shoebox evidence mm. that somehow people had bought and sold oil on your behalf, yeah. which was clearly preposterous at the time. Yeah, it was, uh, had... Uh, but were, uh, you, were, were you scared that actually you, you could indict yourself and that you uh, might end up in prison? Was many that, people were uh, afraid for me that I'd end up in Guantanamo Bay. Uh, but the Daily Telegraph paid me £2.3 million for having published those lies uh, in libel damages and uh, costs, so thanks very much uh, <laughs> for that. Uh, but the, the Senate was a different challenge because uh, this could have uh, ended uh, disastrously. Uh, but I, I relished the opportunity. It was like a heaven-sent opportunity for me. And I didn't know how poor an opponent, set of opponents mm. they'd be, but for me it was getting a platform to tell the truth about the war and to tell the truth about what had happened in Iraq, as well as to ridicule the uh, suggestion that I was a multi-millionaire. So I, I always put it this way, Saddam Hussein never gave me a cent, but the newspapers who alleged that he had have given me millions. Thanks very much. <laughs> <laughs> well, talking of platforms, I'm keen that if anyone has a, a burning question for George, I'm going to take two or three. If anyone does have a question they'd like to ask, please raise your hand and we will come to you. Yeah, what's your name, sir? Richard, and what's your question? Um, during a lot of the recent by-elections, there were reports of um, Palestinians with leaflets going out attacking like, religious uh, children, uh, some of the other aspects of crazy protests. God knows who the true Muslims mm. are. That's not unattributed. That was me. Kind of invalidates your question, <laughs> but uh, go on. Yeah, uh, uh, the, my opponent was a Pakistani Muslim who was going around telling people they should vote for him because he was a Pakistani Muslim. So I felt it was absolutely fair in those circumstances to point out it's a funny kind of Muslim who's always down the bull and bush, downing five pints of Guinness a night. Uh, when I Sounds like a legend. <laughs> 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 When I've, never, when I've never touched alcohol in my entire life, nor my father before me, nor my children uh, after me, I thought that was a fair enough point to make. If you're going around saying people should vote for you because you're the Pakistani Muslim candidate, it's fair enough to point out that uh, I'm actually a better Pakistani Muslim <laughs> than you are. <laughs> Any other questions, please? Yeah, is, is that up on the balcony, is it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. What's your name, mate? Yeah, that's a v obviously a very fair question. Most of my, I mean, only a fool has no regrets. That's the first point to make, and I'm definitely not a fool. I've got loads of regrets. Uh, most of them are personal, uh, and uh, it wouldn't profit me or anyone else involved to rehearse them. But the, 
uh, I made uh, I've made a number of uh, political uh, mistakes. Uh, first of all, on the interpersonal level, uh, I could have uh, been less aggressive. I could have uh, put things differently. I could have chosen that word rather than that word. But when you speak and write millions of words, uh, as I do, and as Matt now does uh, in his radio work, it's easy to uh, make mistakes mm. uh, that are there and nailed on the wall uh, for forever. Um, I also uh, made a mistake in believing for most of my life that uh, public ownership of more or less everything uh, was what we should strive for. Uh, I think that that's wrong. Envy that's ever worn a suit made by a state tailor uh, or eaten in a restaurant run by the state uh, knows that some things are better run by private individuals and, uh, and business uh, rather than the state, and vice versa, by the way. Uh, but I, I had, for most of my life, uh, the wrong mix in the mixed economy that I fight for, uh, the wrong mix in my mind. And I was proselytizing for uh, public ownership of things that actually uh, is a mistake. Um, the big questions... Does that mean you've drifted right a little bit? Yeah. Uh, I think that uh, socialism uh, does not have to mean the state owning everything. Mm. You know, you and I both had a Labour card on which Clause 4, Part 4 of the party's constitution was inscribed to secure for the workers by hand or by brain the full fruits of their industry based on the public ownership of the means of production, distribution and exchange. Well, that was a promise to bring into public ownership the means of production, distribution and exchange, which means every factory, every shop, uh, every bank and so on. The well banks did might the banks. have been a good <laughs> idea because we ended up having to buy them anyway. Um, <laughs> but, uh, no, I think that I had two statist uh, a view of what socialism uh, meant and I think that for a long time I misunderestimated the role <laughs> of individuals uh, within society and got the balance of state versus individual uh, wrong. That's quite a big mistake to confess to and I've just done it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's to your credit, George, indeed. Um, I'll take one more from the audience. If you are up on the balcony, you've got one, can you just shout out? Oh, okay, one down here. What's your name? Chris. Hi, Chris. No, because you wouldn't take that view if your own house, God forbid, were uh, broken into tonight and uh, <laughs> completely trashed. You wouldn't say to the you wouldn't say to the criminal, "Why don't you just stick around for a while?" Uh, and uh, it's no, it's no, it's, it's, uh, it's no truer uh, uh, if you're a country. Afghanistan was a as it happens, I know quite a lot about Afghanistan uh, because I was a supporter uh, of the man that the Taliban and Al-Qaeda hanged from a lamppost uh, and cut his penis off and stuck it in his mouth, uh, having snatched them from a United Nations compound, President Najibullah. Uh, so I've studied Afghanistan for a very long time. And I could have told them, or any schoolboy history book could have told them, that nobody has successfully occupied Afghanistan 
Not even Alexander the Great. And David Cameron ain't no Alexander the Great. That's the truth of it. It cannot work. Uh, the the, the Afghan, I, w I was at a meeting once in Glasgow and an Afghan stood up at the meeting and said, we Afghans are a peace-loving people. And everybody in the room laughed because they're not a peace-loving people. Actually, they love fighting. And they're really, really, really good at fighting. <laughs> and moreover, they're fighting for their country. They regard it as their sacred duty to drive foreigners who've come to occupy them off their land. Whilst our people are not... I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not a pacifist. I'm the least pacifist person you can meet. If somebody invaded and occupied us, I'd be one of those creeping up behind them to cut their throats uh, on the street corners as they stood guard. I, um, I, I would fight to the death to defend this country, my family, the people amongst whom I live. But if you go to somebody else's country and occupy it, you've got to expect that they're going to fight you back. And this seems to me a fundamental weakness in the British psyche and the political class and in the media. They seem to think that Johnny Foreigner likes it up him <laughs> and he's just going to take it. And in fact, he might even throw flowers at you uh, <laughs> as you come to do it. And that's just not true. And the ease with which, the gusto with which we enter or threaten to enter one foreign adventure after another seems to me to imply that no real lessons have been learned. What are we waiting for? Are we waiting for some great military disaster instead of our soldiers dying in one, twos, and threes? Are we waiting for 300 to die in one big bomb? Uh, are we waiting for these two Hercules that were shuttling French forces into Mali? Are we waiting for them both to be shot down and everybody on board to perish? Is that what it will take? Because, frankly, it's only a matter of time before that kind of level uh, of military disaster occurs. And one of the greatest canards is that people like me are against our soldiers. It's the opposite. It's because we're not against our soldiers that we want them home here with their families and defending our own country rather than attacking and invading other people's. George, we've, we've reached the end now. The only thing that uh, remains to do is, what we're going to do is each guest will provide the first question for the next. So my next guest is going to be Nigel Farage. <laughs> <laughs> In a month's time. I wonder if you could provide me, George, with the, the yeah. first question I should ask him. Well, I better leave the three o'clock in the afternoon thing. Uh, <laughs> uh, do you need to be a white, slightly red-faced, <laughs> Union Jack waistcoated Englishman shouting boo at Johnny Foreigner at the Channel Ports to support UKIP? Because that... <laughs> did you get that? Write that, that, <laughs> that, that down. No... Shouting boo at Johnny Foreigner along the White Cliffs of Dover does not constitute a future for Britain. And that, to me, is what UKIP is. It's a group of little Englanders shouting abuse at anything foreign. Me, I quite like foreign. And I mean near foreign as well as far foreign. I like Italian suits and Italian food. And I think that the French do a lot of things... Uh, really better than us. <laughs> That's intriguing, isn't it? <laughs> Phenomenal. Uh, George, it's been a, a real pleasure. I can't thank you enough for Thanks doing so much. Thanks very much. Here's a star, man. Star. George, <laughs>
folks, before uh, before we let you uh, before we let you leave, uh, we should just I, I should thank you all. Really, I can't thank you enough for all of you individually for for coming down. Uh, I wanted to put on a night that was exciting that that shared my passion for politics and got great politicians to come down and explain why they got into politics and to be able to answer any question that, that I or the audience would put to them. It's been a thrilling night for me just to sit and watch at times, George. So uh, thank you all uh, for coming down. Next month we've got Nigel Farage. That's on Wednesday the 13th. We should also thank as well uh, the people here at the venue, the St James Theatre, who have been yeah. so hospitable, and everyone at Avalon who, who made this possible. <laughs> but before... Uh, before we go, please give it up one more time for the legend, Mr. George Galloway. Thank you very much. Well, that was the first edition of the Political Party, and I hope you enjoyed it. Uh, it was a wonderful atmosphere down there on the night. We're going to be podcasting all these shows, but if you would like to come and see the show live, you can get tickets on the St. James Theatre website, which is stjamestheatre.co.uk. The next show, live show will be on the 13th of February, when my guests will be UKIP leader Nigel Farage. I'm afraid tickets for that have already sold out, but we have shows on the 13th of March and the 17th of April. The guests for those are due to be announced and the tickets are on sale already. We'll be podcasting all the shows, so if you can't come along, do listen to the podcast, subscribe to the channel and tell your friends about it. I really hope you've enjoyed listening to it, and um, hope to see you soon. And thank you very much. Thank you for downloading it. For the time being, I've been Matt Ford. See you soon. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Jesse Cruikshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl. Yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.